Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. MG is back and it's electric. The MG ZS EV. From just €28,995, the truly affordable, family-friendly electric range. Go to mg.ie and recharge your soul. It's Wednesday, December the 16th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Just before we start today, a very last reminder that it is that time of year when we gather the entire Irish Times politics team in all their glory for our annual Ask Me Anything podcast, where we do our best to answer whatever questions you put to us. If you want to put your question on that list, you will need to get it into us at the very latest by 10am tomorrow, Thursday, December the 17th. You can send those questions to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com and you can, of course, send them as written text. But since this is an audio format, we would really like to hear your actual voices. So if you record them as a voice memo on your phone and email them to us, they probably have a better chance of getting picked. So do remember that's politicspodcast at irishtimes.com and please do send us those questions by tomorrow morning, December the 17th. Now I'm joined today by Jennifer Bray and Harry McGee, but before I go to them, our Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary has joined us at short notice. Hi Naomi. Hi Hugh, how's it going? Good. Uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was speaking this morning about the Brexit trade talks with the UK. Here's what she had to say. As things stand, I cannot tell you whether there will be a deal or not. But I can tell you that there is a path to an agreement now. The path may be very narrow, but it is there. On fisheries, the discussion is still very difficult. We do not question the UK sovereignty on its own waters, but we ask for predictability and stability for our fishermen and our fisherwomen. And in all honesty, it sometimes feels that we will not be able to resolve this question. But we must continue to try finding a solution And it is the only responsible and right course of action. The next days are going to be decisive. And I know I have said this before. And I know deadlines have been missed time and again. We must all walk these last miles in the same shoes. Thank you so much and long live Europe. Now, Naomi, you're a fluent speaker of Eurospeak. Uh, Can you parse that statement for us? And is there anything um, interesting or anything that's changed uh, within that? I think what um, President von der Leyen is trying to do there is make a desperate appeal to the European Parliament to stop them from rebelling, because essentially the Parliament is furious that they're not going to have enough time if a deal is done to scrutinise it um, and ask questions of people who are experts and so on uh, in, in their usual process before voting on it. And basically they've begun to talk about refusing altogether to ratify the deal by the end of the year. And instead voting, saying that the only thing they're prepared to vote on is some sort of a an extension, um, which I understand is 
quite legally and politically tricky. Um, but essentially, von der Leyen is having to appeal to member states as well and appeal to the European Parliament not to lose their unity and to just keep going together for this final um, final stretch to try and get a deal. Is there any possibility of, not necessarily an extension as the way it was being talked about earlier this year and was was, was firmly ruled out by, by all sides, but that if um, a, an agreement in principle is reached before the 31st of December, that we can push the ratification process into January? The last moment to ask for an official extension was July and the EU would have been only too happy to grant it, but Britain insisted that it wouldn't do that. And so now the options that are there are difficult. I mean, you could, in theory, there could be an agreement by the British government and by the member states to provisionally apply any deal and then hold the ratification process afterwards. But I understand it's quite legally difficult um, and it's politically difficult as well because you know, there, there would that would it would have to be unanimous. It's quite controversial among member states. It's very controversial in the European Parliament. Um, and then, what the European Commission is saying is that either we get things done in a proper way with a vote in the European Parliament, or we're looking at some sort of temporary period of no deal, where technically, legally, the member states and the UK would have to apply tariffs, and we'd have all of that. Um, disruption, just mitigated by some of the contingency plans. Uh, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's been some talk on the British side, you know, anticipating chaos in the case of a no deal in, in early January, that they wouldn't be applying all the checks just in practical terms, in terms of keeping things moving through the through the ports in the UK in the first, first few weeks, or maybe even the first couple of months. I mean, would it be possible to do something like that reciprocally? Or is that just a legal nightmare? Yeah, the UK has said for a long time that it's going to have a phase in period so people don't need to they have a six month sort of period to start putting in the full declarations that they have to technically and I can imagine them waving in trucks uh, just to keep things moving Um, whether things would happen on the EU side is it's a really difficult question the risk now that um, von der Leyen is fearful of is that there start to be mini deals between the UK and member states to do things like that, just to keep things ticking. You see how bringing it up to the very last moment, the British side sees it as a strategic advantage for them because they have a quicker ratification process and it's simpler for them, where it's difficult to keep the 27 together in this in this final stretch with, when things begin to look um, like they're running out of time. And in terms of the talks themselves, um, she talked about a narrow path she was very downbeat, as uh, as we heard on the on the fisheries issue. She did seem to indicate that there has been movement on the level playing field and governance. Yeah. So essentially, there's um, what it's come down to now. There's some sort of agreement on the state aid area where the EU is happy that it's able to sort of autonomously retaliate if it's if it's unhappy with what the British side of doing. Um, and you know, Britain has long said that you know when it comes to state aid, it's not really that one of the the worst defenders in Europe. It's usually sort of the continental, some of the continental governments that go more in for state aid. Um, but anyway, the two sides seem to be happy on uh, what they've agreed on that. Then the second part of the level playing field or fair competition issue uh, comes down to standards and how they'll differ over time. And that's moved from basically an initial position by the EU that they wanted Britain to sort of remain in line to an acceptance that Britain wouldn't um, wouldn't get worse than the current situation. But then the fear is that if the EU, for example, wants to uh, really go 
properly after its climate targets and so on, they could really increase their um, level of stringency in terms of regulations. And then there could be this opening divergence between the two sides. And the big question now is how do you manage that divergence? So what's the test for whether differing rules are actually distorting the market between the UK and EU? So how do you actually measure that? That's the first question. How do you prove it? And then what is the authority that's going to decide it? And then after that, what are the sanctions? So these are the open questions at the moment, and they are quite difficult. And that's the the famous ratchet issue, which we've been hearing about quite a lot over the last few days. There's finally, Naomi, I mean, the, you lay out there a very tricky version of the very narrow path, which Ursula von der Leyen um, mentioned there. What, what is the the timing here. Uh, we do get the impression that the House of Commons, for example, could pass an agreement should it be should it be agreed, you know, early next week or or maybe even I don't, I'm not sure after after what they call Boxing Day. But does does that option close very soon now with the European Parliament? Does somebody need to come out of the door waving a piece of paper saying here's the deal by I don't know Sunday evening, Monday morning? Yes, I think so. I think so. I think it um, basically the European Parliament expects now to be holding some kind of a vote on December 28th, after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year. Um, And it's very contentious now about what that vote will be held on. And in order for them to have any time to even read this thing, remember it has to be translated and it's going to be maybe a thousand pages long, uh, then they're going to have to see a copy of it imminently. Um, So essentially what I'm hearing from sort of powerful MEPs, the, you know, people who are on the trade committee in the European Parliament and so on, is that, you know, it's the end of this week. We've got we've got days now. They have to see a copy, or you know they're just not happy with this ratification process, and it's going to cause a big headache for the EU side. We shall leave it there, but I suspect we're only leaving it for so long. I think we'll be coming back to this very soon. Naomi, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, as I said earlier, Jennifer and Harry are here. Uh, good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Um. Slightly less exciting on the uh, domestic front. I was trawling through the political coverage this week so far, Jen, and I thought, hmm, things are slowing down. And then I was reading uh, Pat Leahy's Inside Politics Digest this morning, and he was, uh, it was generally had a kind of end of term kind of feeling that things were slowing down and people were looking towards the door and thinking of Christmas. Yeah, see, Hugh, you've been spoiled this year. That's your problem. You know, you've, you've had all of these controversies and all these things to fill up your podcasts. And now there's a normal week of politics and we don't know what to do. But no, you're right. It is definitely winding down at the moment. I mean, all of the politicians this time of year, they're generally chugging through things to get them off their list. Usually the last cabinet is a really full one as they get work through a massive uh, list of outstanding items. And then for us as journalists as well, we try to get a lot of stuff ready for Christmas for people to read kind of longer reads and bits and pieces. So we tend to also go a little bit quieter. It's not that we're not busy. It's just that we're working behind the scenes. But Having said that, there are, there are some interesting bits and pieces up this week. And I think one of them is this plan for rolling out the vaccines. And this was uh, released yesterday by the government uh, in, a, in a, a big press conference. And to a certain degree, it seems to have kind of gone under the radar. But the report itself does actually make for very interesting reading, um, especially when you consider that this is the thing that's giving us all you know, a bit of hope, really, about next year. And the, the, the task for the government cannot be underestimated. They really have to get this right. And this is one of those parts of the pandemic where, again, we are so directly comparable to our other, uh, you know, other countries in the EU to see how everybody, everybody does it. And all eyes will be on the government to make sure that they do it right. So 
just to give you some of the kind of the main points that I thought were interesting from the report, I, what I didn't realise was that there's actually 200 COVID-19 uh, vaccine candidates at different stages of development worldwide. Now, we know that we're signed up to six through an advanced purchase agreement uh, via the EU. Um, and in terms of how this will actually work, in, in a basic sense, there'll be an initial rollout, uh, a mass ramp up, and then a period of open access. So where everybody can basically go and, and, and get a vaccine. So we'll move from a period of actually quite limited doses to a period of larger availability. But we actually don't know the dates of those yet. And I don't think we'll know until that um, meeting uh, of the European Medicines Agency um, and the EU meeting next week. That's actually been brought forward to before Christmas, maybe to give us all a little bit of Christmas cheer, I hope. But the rationale behind the distribution of this vaccine, the way the government put it, is that it will be ethical, equitable and clinically driven. But the real reason for the prioritisation is because, like I said, when the vaccine becomes available, there will be more demand than there is uh, actual vaccine doses. So you have to have a prioritisation there and, and obviously it's, it's, it's ethical. So in the fullness of time, we'll have five locations where vaccines will be administered. It'll be nursing homes, hospitals, mass vaccination centres like City West in Dublin, as an example, and GPs and then pharmacies at the later stage of the process. Um, so the hospitals will be the initial vaccine locations and actually they'll have units that will go out to like kind of mobile units that will go out to long-term residential care facilities like nursing homes and I think just from reading the two reports that were released yesterday actually getting these locations up and running these mass vaccination locations and the other ones appears to be absolutely no joke because every location needs the proper resourcing uh, the proper equipment they need to make sure they're handling and storing the vaccine um, at the locations in the appropriate way they need a, a thing called a standard operating uh, procedure. Uh, they need specialist training on the, on the site. And then for these, you know, these very special vaccines that, you know, need it to be at extremely uh, very low temperatures, there are additional steps then for preparing the vaccine, bringing it from its central location uh, fridges, I suppose, to those sites and then to those trained vaccinators. So, you know, that's a huge undertaking. And we're, we're only at the very, very beginning um, of that journey, I suppose. And there's a couple of other, um, I suppose, challenges uh, lying ahead for the government. One of the things that I thought was kind of interesting was in the report, uh, it said that while the vaccine, we know a bit about the vaccines, we don't know everything and that there's still, they don't really know if when you get the vaccine, maybe the severity of your disease isn't as bad and maybe your symptoms, maybe you don't have any symptoms, but they don't know, according to this report, whether you can actually still transmit the virus so you could, you could, Hugh Lenhink, get the vaccine, feel absolutely grand, but could you still carry the infection? And is that still a massive problem? So given that, you'll still need to be wearing your face masks, social distancing, washing your hands for really like the, <laughs> the next few months, to say the least. So that, that element of the pandemic isn't really uh, going anywhere. And there are, there are other gaps, if you'll permit me, um, that kind of stuck out to me a little bit kind of substantial gaps, I would say. And, you know, one of them is the issue of the workforce. So the plan says that they'll need to train additional vaccinators in 2021 um, and that they're looking at maybe at licensing of retired health professionals or maybe maintaining the registration of people who maybe were, I suppose, about to retire. But it's not just the vaccinators because there'll also be more admin staff needed. And then they're looking at the public service. But then, of course, when you do that, then there's concerns about non-COVID healthcare. Are we taking healthcare workers from non-COVID, and we know how much non-COVID healthcare has suffered this year, 
Um, so there's that. Uh, then there's the digital infrastructure. There's been a lot of talk about this over the last few days. Uh, the report says in black and white, Ireland does not have a vaccination ICT system with the functionality that we need to roll out the, the vaccine. And that at this moment in time, they're sourcing and purchasing and implementing a digital system to be implemented by the end of the year. And we're nearly at the end of the year. I think this could be a big problem. And then there's all the questions around uh, governance as well. That's a really good overview of, of, of all the issues. And Harry, and, and they are huge issues. I, I, I think we should bear in mind that this is ultimately a fantastic news story. It's one of the great scientific achievements in uh, in modern medical history, the speed at which these vaccines have been turned around and, and are being brought to, to market so quickly. But Jen, I think, very well laid out some of the challenges, political challenges in some cases, and then some of the, the, the known unknowns, and I think particularly that one about transmissibility and therefore, which has a big impact on whether we can achieve the herd immunity, which is the kind of the, the ideal objective to get to at, at some point next year. But then looking at the report itself, it strikes me there's a couple of things about it. One is that it's quite careful not to set targets and it's quite vague about numbers. And I think we can understand, you know, why that is. But the the initial target groups, I suppose you could say, the the people in the care homes who have been hugely disproportionately represented among uh, among fatalities, and then I suppose people in uh, frontline health workers, they're quite gettable at without a decent ICT system because they're already within, I suppose, the health infrastructure. But I get the collywobbles when I hear about I hear the words Irish health system, Irish government and ICT system in the same paragraph, because the history of those kind of projects has been disastrous in this country to, to date. You know, vast amounts of money wasted and projects undelivered within, after years of attempts to deliver them. OK, I think you have um, now asked the, the longest question that you have asked this year, Hugh. Uh, thank you very much for that. <laughs> um, Wait for my next one. And a very, you, actually, you made a very, very salient and uh, interesting point and looking at ICT uh, those of us who who, who uh, have been around the block a bit will remember the PPARS scandal that happened uh, 15 years ago uh, where the uh, HSE which was newly formed uh, tried to to update uh, its its uh, its system and bring all the different health boards together under one roof and that just became a, an unmanageable mess uh, with uh, potential bills running into hundreds of millions of uh, euro. And it, it was a, a very salutary example of what, what sh- how it shouldn't be done. But we do live in a modern age uh, where uh, communications uh, is, is vital and speed of, of connectivity and of information is vital. And for any vaccine programme that's so wide and so ambitious to work, it's going to need to have a very good... ICT system uh, back, backing it up. So it, it, it has to be done. But um, yes, uh, what's happened in the past doesn't bode confidence. Uh, but uh, the, the, uh, we, we talked about this being a good news story. And I think that uh, when you look at it holistically, when you look at the response holistically, I think the authorities here have responded well. There have been speed bumps along the way and there have been times uh, when NEFET and others have uh, started shouting or uh, started pressing the alarm button a little bit too loudly loudly in my estimation and I think there's been sometimes there's been a disproportionate response but when you look at it uh, in its entirety compared to other countries I think we've responded well and I think the the much derided HSE the much derided Department of Health uh, the much derided various ministers of health 
uh, have have all surpassed themselves and done very well in relation to handling this crisis. And I think that the best slide rule is to compare how we have done uh, with our comparators across Europe. And we have done extraordinarily well. Look at the situation in Britain. Uh, look at the situation in Belgium, in Spain, France, Italy. Look at the Eastern European countries like Slovenia, Lithuania, uh, the Czech Republic, Poland, uh, where the numbers just escalated. Uh, so, I mean, we have been up there with Finland, uh, with Iceland uh, and with Norway in terms of the way that we have uh, handled uh, it. Even Germany, uh, which put a lot of money into its handling and its uh, of the crisis, uh, has been hit with a fresh crisis in the past week. But the, the difficulty with this virus, as we all have learned, is as soon as we start patting ourselves on the back, something terrible happens. And if you look at this new strain that has emerged in Britain, and if you looked at, at Germany, for example, how quickly uh, a, a new wave of the virus has spread in, in one week alone, uh, you have to realise that you always need to be uh, vigilant. It's a very infectious uh, disease. Uh, in relation to the vaccine, I think the vaccine programme is a sensible one because if you look at the fatalities, they're very heavily raked uh, towards the eldest in our society. I think 94% of those who have died uh, from COVID vaccine, the last time I looked at the figures, uh, were those aged 75 uh, years and uh, over. And very few under 65 have died, certainly very, very few who have had no underlying uh, conditions uh, but that said, it's so infectious, lots of people get it. And the danger is when they get it, they pass it on to those who are most vulnerable and those who are most uh, elderly. And from what I've read of the programme and the plan, I, I think it's a sensible one. I think they're also sensible, as you pointed out there, Hugh, not to set themselves targets that can't be reached. The, the moment you set a, a an ambitious target uh, and if you fail to meet that target, uh, the, the focus is on the failure to meet that particular target rather than, than on the good work that's been done. So I think that's been a sensible approach uh, as well. Uh, just going back to Jen's uh, opening uh, point, saying that it's been a, a week of normal politics. I, I don't think any week uh, this year has been normal in terms of politics. And I just think generally when we look at the uh, how it's played out for political parties this year, it's been the year of, of apologies. It's just been extraordinary. We had Brian Stanley yesterday and he's the last in a litany, a long litany of people who have apologised uh, this year. And you and I, Hugh, are old enough to remember uh, a band that came from a place called Starbridge called Pop Will Eat Itself. And sometimes I think that all political parties in the fullness of time will end up eating uh, themselves. Uh, the Greens are at it this week. Uh, over in a big row over the Canadian Europe Europe uh, trade deal, and again they're reviving all the divisions and all the rancor and all the bitterness that we saw uh, during program for government negotiations in uh, in early uh, summer, and the dividing lines are, are almost uh, the same. And that bitterness within the party, and bitterness is a strong word, but it it, it is a bitterness. There is a kind of a split in there that has not been resolved and I think uh, may not be resolved. I, I think that CETA might end up in one or two TDs uh, from the Green Party 
uh, going overboard in the fullness of time. And let's come back to both those points because they seem to me to not only be symptomatic of things that happened this year, but probably are going to uh, drive some of the things that we're going to see happening next year. But before we leave the vaccine entirely, I do want to ask you, Jen, about the um, the politics of this, and particularly from the point of view of Stephen Donnelly. It strikes me the politics are going to get complex and unpredictable in ways that we can't yet, we're not yet quite sure about. But if, for example, if the rollout goes well, and if those high-risk groups who have contributed so so much to those people who have fallen seriously ill or even have died, if those numbers, let's say, start going down quite significantly in the spring, which they should do if this if this thing works the way it's supposed to, that's going to have a countervailing balance on the other side, on the economic side, with businesses looking for restrictions to be lifted as quickly as possible so that people can get back to normal, even if it is still out there in the community. And I wonder about Stephen Donnelly. Here he is, comes from this sort of management consultancy background. So supposedly he's all about deliverables and targets and all those kinds of things. This is probably the most important six months of his career coming up now. Yeah, and a lot of people, you know, over the last few months have said it was almost not an easy decision, but an easier decision to go into lockdown and a much more difficult decision and a much more difficult task to come out of it um, and manage all the the various competing demands. From what I can see of Stephen Donnelly so far, he has been like by and large led by public health, by and large led by what the chief medical officer says, notwithstanding his own kind of background. Um, And like you say, sort of targets and deliverables and McKinsey and management and all that kind of stuff. But I think you're right. I, I do think that when we get to next year and if it does work out as it should, as we all hope it will, then, yeah, of course. I mean, look, even in the last couple of weeks, even when we had much higher figures, we still had businesses calling, um, you know, to come out of, of lockdown or to ease restrictions. So if we had that now, of course, we're going to have it when things are looking a bit rosier uh, in, in the garden. I think that's kind of almost next year's problem. But in terms of Donnelly and politically, I actually think the biggest challenge for him over the next coming months will be communications. And, you know, we've seen a lot of things political, a lot of things pandemic, the communications has been key. And when it's gone wrong or when there's been confusion, it has not been good. Um, and it is very important. And it, particularly now in terms of a vaccine, multiple times in this report that we talked about, um, they they mentioned the importance and the significance of getting this message across to the, to the public. And I think one of the particular lines that stuck out to me was it called for precise coordination across government, several state agencies, the HSE, uh, advisory bodies, regulatory bodies, delivery partners, the health sector, the private sector. Like this isn't just Stephen Donnelly getting the message across to you and me. This is a really complex undertaking across a whole range of different bodies. And the message has to be the same and it has to be clear and it has to be well understood. Um, And that's not just in terms of the safety of the vaccine or the efficacy of the vaccine, which we know will become a bigger and bigger question as, as, it, as it rolls out. It's how those different bodies talk to each other, um, particularly if something goes wrong, you know, and something probably will go wrong. You know, this is a huge programme, the biggest programme of inoculation state's ever seen, you know, so it, it would be kind of naive to think this is going to be completely smooth sailing. So that will really, really matter, I think. And I think that the, the challenge for the Department of Health, that's, to me, from what I can read and from what I can see, uh, is actually the biggest one. And... At the very end, when they talked about their communications plan, I thought there was a really interesting line in it where they talked about research that they'd done at the Department of Health. And they said that a lot of people who doubt the vaccine are actually just in a dilemma. They want it. They want to get the vaccine, but they're cautious because they're worried this thing's been rushed out very fast. 
How can we be sure the corners haven't been cut? You know, they're worried about the speed of the development and they want to be reassured, basically. And they want to be told, yes, we haven't cut any corners. This is safe and this is effective. Uh, At the same time, the department will have to obviously own the fact that this is science. Nothing is ever 100%. There are no guarantees. Um, And to, to have those two messages and make sure that people are reassured enough to get the vaccine and We've seen previously with other um, vaccines, misinformation campaigns. I think we'll see this again. Sure, we've already seen it, kind of LED lines, uh, lights going up on the side of roads. So, yeah, I think that they probably will pick out ambassadors. I think they'll pick out trusted health experts is what they're, the phrase they're using. I, I heard Michal Martin last night saying on, I think it was Virgin Media News, kind of hinting that they might use influencers and stuff again or every inf- influencer they can use. So, yeah, I think for Donnelly and for the Department of Health, uh, obviously the logistics and everything, but that's kind of for the HSE, but the communications, they absolutely have to get this right. Yeah, my heart sinks, Harry, at the notion of being bombarded with messages from Brezzy telling me to get my vaccine, you know, but I suppose that's part of, you know, the world we live in now. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I do rely on influencers when I'm doing my manicures and stuff, but I mean, for my health notices, I just don't know. Um, I actually think Stephen Donnelly has done, uh, he, he got a hammering when he became uh, Minister for Health, and it was a little bit disorganised uh, at the start. And there were a few articles in newspapers that, that purported to be assessments of him, and they they absolutely hammered him. But I kind of admired him responding to them uh, in saying, you know, I will respond to criticism when they come from named critics, uh, because most of his critics were, were, were anonymous and were quoted as sources. But I do think that in recent weeks that Stephen Donnelly does seem to be performing uh, more strongly. He seems to be more assured and he seems to be, uh, you know, he seems to be giving the impression that he's in charge. Now, I don't know whether that will work out for him in the long term, but certainly he, uh, he, he gives me more confidence now as Minister for Health than certainly he did uh, two months ago. But I think that Jennifer is completely right. I think communications is key, both for him and also for the government and for the Department of Health. And one of the things I've been cribbing about in the past couple of weeks is the messages uh, that consoled us all back in March and April about all of us being in together and the metal thing, that that's become exceedingly uh, stale. So they're going to have to come up uh, with freshly minted cliches uh, to bring us through the rest of this pandemic. They're going to come up with new language and new ways of engaging because otherwise people people are already weary. I was on a road trip to um, Cavan and Donegal uh, to see how uh, uh, lockdown was going there and why the numbers were so high. And one of the things that struck me was the weariness of people. People are getting very tired. Uh, small towns across Ireland have been dead and were especially de- dead during the weeks of lockdown. And people were really concerned about their jobs, about their work, about business and about the, the, the future. And the, the thought of a third lockdown for many was intolerable. And one of the things that needs to change is that the message needs to change. It needs to become uh, more bespoke, more tailored. Uh, uh, the information has to be far more precise uh, rather than these general platitudes. I mean, they were great at the start, but they have become platitudinous now. And the government really needs to think because people are in danger of being patronised uh, into into uh, into uh, oblivion by, by all uh, of this. But going back, I think Stephen Donnelly has begun to improve. I think his communications has improved but I agree completely with Jen in relation to the communications piece. That's going to be vital if people are going to be carried along uh, into 2021. And we know that most people won't be in a position to get the vaccine 
until later on in the year. Uh, going back to the initial point that you were making, I think it's extraordinary that within a year of um, a, a vaccine or of a, a virus being identified, we have a, a vaccine that's been rolled out globally. It's just extraordinary. When you look at AIDS, for example, which has been around for over 30 years and they still haven't come up with a vaccine for AIDS. Uh, if you look at a, a another major disease that affects uh, modern society, dementia and Alzheimer's, they've been really trying to come up with some kind of uh, of solution uh, for those for, for many years. And they haven't, have come up with nothing uh, that has been effective. So to do it in a year, I know the coronavirus was recognised and they knew kind of how to do it, but to do it in a year was just extraordinary in my estimation. Absolutely. Jen, can I ask you about Harry's point earlier about this being the year of apologies, different sorts of apologies, sometimes no apology, followed by grudging apologies, followed by less grudging apologies, followed by complete grovelling. And sometimes those apologies worked in terms of keeping the the, the apologiser in their jobs. And on many occasions, it didn't. Um, are apologies a kind of defining theme? And I'm a bit sick of them at this point. I mean, Brian Stanley, this thing has really gone on a bit too long. I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I know it's probably a bad thing to say as a journalist, but every day that that controversy rolls on, I just kind of put my head in my hands and think, oh, I really want to write about something else. You know, if I don't want to go around writing about Brian Stanley every day. Like, believe you me. Um, but yeah, it is, I do agree. It is kind of the year of the apology. I think if we've learned anything about political apologies this year, if you're going to make a political apology, make it fulsome, be 100% in that apology, own that apology, put it right out there at the beginning and don't leave any room for, you know, manoeuvre or for, you know, people to say, oh, that was kind of a half apology. That's when it rumbles on. Look at what happened with Phil Hogan. You know, his first apology was kind of not fully there. And then as the kind of different revelations came out and the narrative kind of changed a little bit, we got kind of more fulsome apologies. And then, of course, we know what happened in the end. And I think um, it's interesting with Brian Stanley that, there were two tweets. There was the one about uh, the ambushes and then there was a second tweet about Leo Varadkar. And both tweets upset different cohorts of people. So the younger um, members of Sinn Féin were more upset, to my eyes, at the tweet, you know, what they thought had some kind of undertone of homophobia and it's something which Brian Stanley um, absolutely uh, strenuously denies that there is. And then there was kind of a different... It seemed to me more politicians were angry about the... Um, about the IRA tweet. And, you know, when this first developed and when we heard Mary Lou MacDonald out on the radio, she apologised in terms, well, she didn't apologise, she said that the problem with the first tweet was the tone. And obviously this was a problem for Sinn Féin. You know, are they going to apologise for the the uh, content of what's being said? Are they going to apologise for that? Are they going to apologise for what happened? Uh, and, and a campaign of violence? No, probably not. Uh, or are they going to apologise for the tone? So I was watching particularly yesterday to see how would Brian Stanley address this? How would he go at it? And the way he did was he said, uh, and I quote, I accept that my tweet regarding the ambushes at Kilmichael and Narrowwater was insensitive and that it caused hurt and anger. Words can do that. And my words did. And for that, I am truly sorry. And I think that was probably a good way of, for him, uh, of approaching it because it, it comes across as a fulsome apology without really opening a, a different can of worms for him in relation to Sinn Féin and its past. And then, like, for me, his apology yesterday was kind of short enough. He sort of just said, I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for that. I will try harder. Um, and he said he tried to ring, I think, uh, Leo Varadkar to apologise in person. 
And I actually asked Leo Varadkar's spokesman last night, would he be willing to take that call or was that going to happen today? And he said, yes, if it can be arranged. So I don't foresee too much. Uh, I don't know if that's actually going to happen or not. But then the other thing I, I heard was that um, when someone makes a personal statement or an apology to the doll like this, in the standing orders, there is no room for any other statements from other parties afterwards or any questions or anything like that. You make your personal statement and you move, the business moves on. But I think there was, um, to say a campaign probably would be the wrong word, but a concerted effort in Fine Gael to change that. And they, I think they asked the Ceann Corla, uh, could they come in and, and make statements and, you know, have their say. And they were told, no, there's no avenue to do that. And I think it just shows um, that even at this late stage of the year, Fine Gael and Sinn Féin are still at each other's necks and they're not resting at anything, not even with Christmas on the doorstep. And this is going to be, I think, a defining characteristic of the next year. And we're all already fed up of it. So can you imagine how we'll feel this time next year? So I don't know whether they're going to need to change tack or whether the opinion polls will change. But it's definitely, I can see us here at this other side of Christmas talking about Sinn Féin, Fine Gael and apologies. And not necessarily about the major housing policy or health policy, but about sniping about things that people said in social media or what they did. Anyway, well, we'll leave that because unfortunately, I think you're right. We will probably have to return to some of that. But Harry, just briefly before we go, you did mention this internal disagreement uh, among the Greens about this trade agreement with Canada. And it is a sort of harbinger for further problems ahead internally for the Greens in, in 2021, I think, isn't it? Yeah, the Greens have been divided since the summer and they've lost a fair amount of younger members who would have been seen to be kind of just society people, people who would have been on on the left uh, of the party. There was a big uh, debate about coalition and the party decided relatively uh, overwhelmingly, actually, over 70 percent of the party favoured going into a coalition. So that was settled. But then we could see the uh, divisions uh, within the party surface again during the leadership uh, competition when Eamon Ryan survived by the uh, skin of his teeth uh, in the contest against Catherine uh, Martin. So we've had, you're talking about the Sinn Féin, uh, Fine Gael uh, uh, kind of dichotomy or this kind of narrative. Well, you have the kind of the, 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 the revival of the fundos versus the, 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 uh, uh, the relos, uh, the fundies versus the relos in the Green Party uh, where there are two wings of the party, each kind of competing uh, for the soul of what the Green Party uh, should be about. And the, the, the realists are in the ascendancy. So this CETA is a very good uh, illustration or example, uh, a microcosm, uh, as, as, as you will, of, the, of this kind of debate uh, that is happening uh, within the party. And it's the Canadian-European uh, trade deal and... Um, Environmental groups, uh, which are a kind of touchstone for the Green Party, have campaigned very vigorously against it. Alice Mary Higgins, the independent senator, led, uh, uh, along with Lynn Ruan and one or two others, led a, a very lonely uh, um, uh, crusade against CETA in the Shannon uh, when it was going through uh, several uh, years ago. Uh, but it, it, it did go through, but it's now coming up uh, for ratification, even though most of it has been in operation uh, for several years. But there are several uh, parts of it uh, that are very contentious as far as the Green Party is concerned. And one of them is this: the, these special tribunals uh, to resolve um, uh, uh, trade uh, disagreements. And they do give uh, a huge amount of power to private corporations to sue 
uh, a a a a party to a trade agreement, which is a state, or or in our case, the European uh, Union, uh, if a decision taken by that state or by that union has a deleterious or a detrimental effect on the uh, on the trade performance of that company. And one of the big uh, examples that's given is a case that was taken by the tobacco manufacturer, Philip Norris, uh, against the Australian uh, government several years ago in relation to a law it had introduced uh, in the interests of public health. And as those who campaigned against CETA are saying, you know, for example, the Public Health Alcohol Bill of 2018, uh, which kind of put limits on 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 alcohol sales and marketing and advertising and pricing and what have you, uh, that uh, the CETA could have had a chilling effect on that particular piece of legislation because if a company were to show uh, that this particular law uh, uh, diminished sales or had an impact, a negative impact on its sales, it could take a, a case uh, to this tribunal which kind of sits outside the current uh, legal system. So that's the kind of the objection. Uh, Eamon Ryan was one of those who originally objected. Uh, his argument is that things have moved on since. And for example, the primacy of the Paris Accord has been established. Uh, the European Court of Justice has also held, he argues, uh, that public health law in Europe takes precedence uh, over anything that's contained in a deal like CETA. But it hasn't really been hammered down yet. So there is a kind of a fault line there. And that fault line is is evident within the Greens. So what's happened was that it was going to be ratified uh, last Friday and NASA Horrigan uh, indicated to her party that she'd vote against uh, if it wasn't deferred. And it has been deferred now until January. Now she and presumably others within the Green Party want to be deferred even further uh, to allow ample time uh, for debate. Uh, but speaking to people about it yesterday, uh, I can see that 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 uh, attitudes are quite hard in relation to this on both sides, and um, I, I I think that we're kind of heading uh, for a a showdown at some stage uh, between those factions of of the Green Party, and um, if that happens, it will have um, at the very best a a slight destabilising effect on the coalition that's in power at present. Hope that wasn't too long and too convoluted an explanation of CETA. But uh, given what CETA is like, um, uh, I think it's as, as concise as I could possibly be. No, I mean, we started today's podcast with disputes about international trade and the thorny details that are involved. And we ended it uh, on a similar tack, which I think brings at least a certain thematic continuity of nothing nothing else today. today's podcast. We are going to leave it there, though, guys. So thanks very much to, to Jen and to Harry. Thanks to Suzanne Brennan, our producer. Thanks to JJ Vernon, our engineer. And remember that if you want to get in touch with us, we are always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com and get those questions in for our Ask Me Anything. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.